Hindsight is always 2020. Has that saying proved true in your life? Hindsight is always 2020. This idiom or this proverbial principle is that common expression of what most people come to experience at different points and at various seasons of our life. Hindsight is always 2020 is just another way of stating that we can evaluate past actions or past decisions or even past events with greater clarity and understanding as we look back. As we look back on the past and see reality unfold with greater clarity than when we were making those decisions in the heat of the moment. It's the young child who refuses to wear a jacket when it's freezing outside, only to realize after one hour of leaving home, they are wishing they had worn the jacket their parents gave them. It's the high school or college student hanging out with friends and staying up late at night. But he or she realizes the next day they probably shouldn't have done that. It was fun at the moment, but now they're exhausted and can barely focus on the exam they're about to take. Or think about it in financial terms. How many of us have spent a lot of money on Christmas gifts only to realize later that spending time together with loved ones and just doing fun things together far outweighed the value of having excessive and extravagant gifts under a tree that only sits in your house for 30 to 45 days out of a year. Or think about it when it comes to dating and even marriage. Maybe you chose to date someone or even marry them that your parents or close friends or even your pastor told you not to date. But it's only later that you realize you were wrong and they were right. The siren of I told you so is ringing in your thoughts. Or think about COVID-19 and how strange of a world we lived in from 2020 to 2021. At the time, it was chaotic and crazy for everyone in some shape or form. It was even sad and disorienting with all the hospitalizations and deaths. But think about all the divisions that occurred. Division in the church. Division over face diapers or masks. Division over many things in schools, businesses, families. Just continue the list. Friends, regardless of how you and I think our government or our nation responded to COVID-19, it will certainly be a unique era recorded in the history books still to be printed and published. It will be a moment in history that future generations will be able to say things about these years and see things with greater clarity than we had during those long and weary months. Or think about it when it comes to leaving versus staying at a church. Maybe you stayed at a particular church for way too long. For years, it was a church that you thought was fine and even pretty good because it was comfortable and it was all you really knew. But then in time, you had to find out the hard way that it was super unhealthy. It wasn't until something strange or suspicious or outright egregious happened 
that you began to think twice about staying in that church. You began to reflect on days gone by. You began to see things that were sinful and disturbing that were brought to the light, where before you just viewed them as normal. Though you were warned by a friend by what they noticed, you didn't listen to them at first. And it was through this difficult circumstance being placed between a rock and a hard place when you began to seriously think about leaving for the first time. But then, after you left, and months and even years have gone by, it's only then when you realize with 2020 vision looking back that it was God's amazing mercy that opened your eyes to the toxicity you were in. Now looking back, though it was unbelievably painful and disillusioning to make that decision to leave, you're now thankful to God for showing you the exit door before it was too late. You're thankful that he opened your eyes to lead you to a better place. Hindsight is always 2020. So what is your hindsight is always 2020 story? What are some examples from your own life where God has revealed things to you about your past? Past decisions, past sufferings, past disappointments, even past blessings and joys that now, today, you see with greater understanding and even greater clarity. As Christians, in one sense, we're not all that different from unbelievers with the hindsight is 2020 vision. But the biggest difference between a Christian and a non Christian is who we see at work in the past. You see, for a Christian, it's about looking back and seeing whose sovereign hands you can now trace in your past. It's about looking back and seeing whose strong and steady footsteps of guidance you can now give credit to for bringing you this far in your life. It's about looking back and seeing whose patience, whose kindness, and whose mercy you are eternally indebted to for sustaining you, for preserving you all the way to this very present moment this morning. Beloved, as Christians, we don't know exhaustively or with perfect precision of everything that will happen in the future. We can't always see why we're going through what we're going through in the present. And we can't even always see what we're supposed to see by looking back at the past. But the God we trust in, the God of Holy Scripture, He does. The God who calls us to himself, convicting us of our sin and giving us a love for our Savior, Jesus Christ, he does. Brothers and sisters, one of the ways we grow in maturity and we grow in gratitude as Christians is we look back on our prayer life. We look back at what we've prayed to God for in the past. We look back and recount what prayers God has answered in the past. But we also look back at those prayers he didn't answer, at least not in the way we expected him to. Friends, we should pay close attention to what we are asking of Jesus to do in our lives right now 
in this very moment. And we should also ask why. Why do you and I pray what we pray for? It's a good examination question even right now. What do you want Jesus to do for you in your life right now? And why do you want Jesus to do what you're asking him to do? If you have a copy of God's word, please open your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10 specifically, we'll be studying Mark 10 verses 32 to 52. If you're using one of the chair Bibles provided, you can find that on page 494. Over the last couple of weeks in Mark's gospel, we have encountered the razor-sharp teachings of Jesus on matters that touch each one of us on a very personal level. Matters such as Jesus' views on marriage and divorce, Jesus' view on children and the necessity of having childlike faith to enter the kingdom of God. And then we left off last week in Mark 10, 17 to 31, looking at the story of the rich young ruler and how this young man loved his stuff, his money, his wealth, more than he did Jesus. He loved his earthly comforts more than having comfort eternally with Christ. The passage left off actually with a hopeful encouragement where Jesus promises us to his disciples and to us who follow Jesus today that whatever sacrifices we make in obedience to Jesus will be rewarded by God, both in this life as he chooses, but absolutely in the next life. We pick back up in the story, which is Jesus' journey towards Jerusalem, where he continues his divine purpose for which he came to earth to fulfill. Mark 10, starting in verse 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him. And kill him. And after three days, he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink, 
And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up. He is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. This is God's word. If you're taking notes, here are my two main points. I'll repeat them a few times. Point number one, Jesus leads his disciples with 20-20 vision by his example of humble and courageous obedience to the will of God. Jesus leads his disciples with 20-20 vision by his example of humble and courageous obedience to the will of God. Point number two. Jesus leads his disciples with 20-20 vision by his answer to prayer and his power to save. Jesus leads his disciples with 20-20 vision by his answer to prayer and his power to save. Let's look at that first point together, which is going to cover verses 32 to 45. Jesus leads his disciples with 20-20 vision by his example of humble and courageous obedience to the will of God. Look with me, starting at verses 32 to 34 again. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, 
See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days, he will rise. Friends, what does it mean to be a leader? What does it mean to be a leader? What does it mean to be someone who leads others to trust you and then you have those same people follow you? Well, among many things, a leader is one who takes initiative to accomplish a task. And uniquely, a leader is one who takes initiative to accomplish a task that others too will support and get behind. Leaders form a plan, and they lay out how they're going to accomplish that plan, and then leaders get out in front to execute that plan. Good leaders, therefore, are those who cast off passivity and repent of dragging their feet. They repent of always waiting on others to tell them what to do next. They forsake remaining in the codependent and crippled state of fearing others of being lazy, or simply being a chronic, indecisive person. And instead, good leaders, the types of leaders you and I should want to follow, courageously get out in front to carve out a clear path and paint a clear vision for others to follow. Well, starting here in verse 32, we see Jesus, our Lord, doing just that. Did you notice what verse 32 says? And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem and Jesus was walking ahead of them. Why do you think that's significant? Why do you think it's significant that in Mark's gospel, he took the time and attention to put that detail at this point in the story? Jesus was walking ahead of them. Now, was Jesus just trying to avoid his disciples? Like, hey, Peter, look over there. You know. Was Jesus trying to hit the proverbial gas pedal and leave his stubborn disciples in the dust? Well, he certainly could have done that. But I think if we read more carefully... There was something way more significant going on. Let's point out a few of those things. First, as a rabbi or teacher, Jesus was looked at as an example. He was looked at as a leader by his disciples, by his students. Even the way you were raised, you answer the question, who was your favorite teacher? And most of us can probably remember maybe one name. Fifth grade, I had Mrs. Weeks or you know, seventh grade, I had Mrs. McCorkle, or 10th grade, I had fill in the blank. And you look back on why they were your favorite teacher. It's because they were probably a good leader. Well, Jesus is a teacher. He's a rabbi. They even address him as such. They looked up to him. The whole practice what you preach motto is therefore always applicable to those who are leaders, especially those who are leaders in the home those who are leaders over minors or children, 
those who are leaders of sports teams and hospitals and the military and even in the civil government, and especially those who are leaders in Christ's church. Hence why the biblical principle of Luke 6, 39 to 40, if you want to jot that down, it's a great one to remember. Luke 6, 39 and 40 is crucial for all of us to remember when we're discerning which types of spiritual leaders we should follow. Listen carefully to what Jesus said in Luke 6, 39 and 40. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Well, here in Mark's gospel, Jesus is depicted as the premier disciple training teacher, the premier trailblazer of righteous living, a trailblazer of faithful teaching on the one hand and a trailblazer of godly obedience on the other. Jesus is physically walking in front of them to Jerusalem, but he's also his entire life been showing the world and showing his disciples what it means to obey God. His path is teaching sinners what it means to know God and what it means to discern the will of God in our own life. By Jesus' obvious determination to travel to Jerusalem, you'll notice he's not letting anyone get in his way. The disciples are seeing a man who means what he says and says what he means. Jesus' very actions as he took every step in those sandals on that dusty road, were speaking for themselves. His actions are backing up what he had taught his disciples previously would happen to him, which leads to that second important insight to consider. Notice what Jesus knows in advance that is going to take place in the days ahead. Notice what Jesus knows, not merely in hindsight 2020 vision, but with foresight 2020 vision ahead of time about his future. Look at verse 33. See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days, he will rise. If you can recall from previous sermons, this is actually the third time that Jesus recounts his passion prediction, his predetermined plan of suffering, betrayal, injustice, and ultimately death. Uh, to rejog our memories, turn back with me to Mark chapter 8. You can hold your place in Mark 10. Turn back to Mark 8, 31 to 33. In Mark 8, 31 to 33, we see Jesus' first passion prediction that he told his disciples. Basically, it's the first of three times where Jesus reveals himself as the Son of Man who came from heaven to earth to suffer, to die, and then rise again. Mark 8, starting in verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days 
rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Now look over with me at Mark 9, verses 30 to 32. Mark 9, 30 to 32. In Mark 9, 30 to 32, we see the second of the three passion predictions of Jesus as the Son of Man who will suffer, die, and then rise again. Mark 9, verse 30. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know. For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. But notice verse 32. For they did not understand the saying, and were afraid to ask him. It's kind of like when the teacher ends the classroom lecture. Now, students, are there any questions? No one's going to raise their hand, even though they all have questions, because, well, they're afraid. Go back to Mark 10 now. Mark chapter 10. You'll notice in all three accounts of these passion predictions that Jesus shows no hesitation in what he tells his disciples. None. He's clear. He's confident. And he doesn't show any uncertainty about who he is and what is going to happen to him. Friends, think with me for a moment. Jesus isn't saying with confidence he's going to be rich, wealthy, and famous on earth, and therefore if you follow him, you sow a seed, reap a harvest, you'll be rich too. He doesn't say that. Jesus isn't saying that he's going on an extended vacation or he's aiming to accomplish some 10-item bucket list in his retirement years. Jesus isn't saying that if you follow me, you're going to see a man who's loved, liked, accepted, and agreed with by those you encounter in his ministry. It's the total opposite. Jesus basically knows, listen, not only that one day he will die like we know, we all, do, we all know we're going to die, but Jesus knows how he's going to die. And not only does he know how he's going to die, listen to this, He knows why he's going to die. Friends, I don't know about you, but I don't want to know when I'm going to die or even how I'm going to die. Now, you might be a weirdo and you want that. You keep that between you and Jesus. And I know the curiosity can get the best of us, but I don't think I or most of us could even handle that kind of information ahead of time. As much as you and I may at times, friends, are anxiously curious about the future in our lives, friends, we should trust God's wisdom and mercy for not telling us about the future ahead of time. As a good and wise father towards his fragile, fearful, and finite children, God knows what we cannot handle. His withholding of such knowledge about our futures from us should keep us humbly dependent on him year by year 
month by month, day by day, hour by hour, moment by moment. Friends, never forget David's words. In Psalm 139, verse 16, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them. What was written every one of them? The days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Friends, the Lord knows how many days we will live on earth because our days on earth are numbered by the Lord. Let me say that again. The Lord knows how many days we will live on earth because our days on earth are numbered by the Lord. So instead of anxiously trying to peer into the future, like someone reading horoscopes in the newspaper or living off percentages that a doctor guesstimates and gives you, as Christians, we should pray. And we should pray very specifically something like this. Lord, teach me to number my days that I may get a heart of wisdom. Lord, give me strength to live a full life for King Jesus, whether it's a long life or a short one. Lord, give me wisdom on how to plan well as if I'll live to be 100 years old, while at the same time give me urgency to aggressively obey Jesus as if today was my last day. Beloved, may we seize and maximize every opportunity we get to visit the sick, love the elderly, and attend funerals. Yes, I did just say that. Take every opportunity, seize them, maximize them to visit the sick, love the elderly, and attend funerals because it's in those moments you and I are reminded of our mortality. And likewise, we should minimize, I didn't say erase, but minimize how much time we waste on entertainment, hobbies, and keeping up with the latest drama on social media or your favorite news outlet. Friends, time is precious. If there's anything Jesus models for us, is that he knew his time was short. It was brief. He knew the hour of his passion, and he did not waste a breath of it until his time was up. Friends, time is precious, and how we spend it is saying something about how we're thinking of eternity. Friends, does the way you and I have been spending time lately tell others that we're thinking well about eternity? How we spend or save our money how we share the gospel, how we love those closest to us, how we prioritize this church. Is it telling others we actually believe eternity is but one heartbeat away? If it doesn't, we might need to have some self-reflection in shuffling the deck on our priorities. 
Friends, you can always make more money, but you cannot make up more time. Once it's gone, it's gone. Solomon's word in Ecclesiastes 7.2 is a timely word for all of us to hear. Ecclesiastes 7 verse 2, it is better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind and the living will lay it to heart. But friends, even if you and I knew how we were going to die and when we were going to die, most of us would be filled with what? Just say it together. You sound fearful even in saying it. Fear. Anxiety. More questions than answers. More concerns than comforts. But guess what? Not with Jesus. Jesus knows his death sentence is coming and he's walking right into the eye of the storm with no sign of evacuating from that death sentence. Beloved, are you fearful or anxious about your future? Are you fearful or anxious about someone you love and their future? Are you anxious and fearful about the future of this church? Friends, when we are fearful of our future or others, you look to the one who's not afraid. Jesus is fearless when it comes to thinking about and knowing the future. Friends, when you and I are weak and uncertain about what the future holds, Jesus remains calm, steady, and confident, walking ahead of us into the eye of any storm we'll ever encounter. Friends, he was fearless about his own future, heading to Calvary. He will not be afraid of any kind of thing in our future. What did Jansen read earlier from Psalm 55, verse 22? Cast your burden with who? The Lord, and he will sustain you. He will not permit the righteous to be moved. After Jesus triple clicks on the mouse of his death sentence coming, he walks forward in his obedience to the will of God. But friends, he's not walking alone, is he? He's walking together with his fearful disciples. As they walk towards Jerusalem, Jesus is out in front of them, and they are slowly but surely coming behind them. Some are amazed, Mark says in verse 32, and some are fearful. Friends, we would be the same, wouldn't we? But along the way, two of the disciples, which are also brothers, want to ask Jesus a question. Really, it's, it's more of a petition or an urgent request. It's not a favor. It's not a trivial wish list. It's a burning desire in their hearts that they felt utterly convinced they should ask Jesus to grant them. Look with me at verses 35 to 40. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? 
And he said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit in my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. If you study the synoptic gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, these two brothers will become very familiar to each one of us. Uh, James and John are the sons of a man named Zebedee. Zebedee was probably well off financially. We know from Mark chapter 1, verse 19, that before James and John began following Jesus, they were fishermen with their dad by trade. In fact, they were partners in the fishing business with Peter and his brother Andrew as well. And we know from Mark's gospel that Zebedee was probably pretty successful, pretty wealthy, pretty well-known. He had a great business to hand his boys if they were to continue in the fishing business. Mark 1.20 tells us he had hired servants in the boat with him. But James and John were more than just former fishermen. These two brothers were very special to the heart of Jesus. And friends, Jesus loved all his disciples, but newsflash, hopefully it's not totally offensive to us, but there was even an inner three of the disciples that Jesus had a unique and special relationship with that he didn't necessarily have with all 12. Jesus' inner three is Peter, James, and John. Because of their zeal and probably their kind of overall emotive temperament, Jesus uniquely named these boys sons of thunder. You know, I know men are thinking, honey, if the Lord grants us the ability to have more children, I think sons of thunder could be on the top of the list. I'm not sure that's going to pass, but keep on dreaming. Maybe name some dogs sons of thunder. In fact, one point in Jesus' ministry, these two boys were wanting to embody some kind of Elijah-like ministry, call down fire from heaven and wipe out Samaritan people because they wouldn't put Jesus up in a hotel. But Jesus had to calm these two cage stage zealots out, even rebuke them, close your mouth, young men. You know a lot of theology, but you're too dangerous to go share it with anyone right now. You're a little misguided in your zeal. We know from Mark chapter 5 that when Jesus restored a young girl's life back from death, these two brothers were very near to him. It says in Mark 5, 37, And Jesus allowed no one to follow him into the home except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And then there's that powerful manifestation of Jesus' glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. And lo and behold, who do we find at the top of the mountain with Jesus? We read in Mark 9, verse 2, And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. Basic point here. When you read James and John in this section, you need to understand these were not fringe disciples. These were not back row Baptists who came to church late and left early so no one could talk to you. These were really close, very well-known disciples of Jesus. And they go up to Jesus because they had VIP access to Jesus. 
And these two young men asked their master teacher, their Messiah, a persistent and passionate question. In fact, according to Matthew's gospel, in Matthew 20, verse 20, it's their mother, it's their mama, who actually initiates the discussion with Jesus and asks the first question. So the boys here in Mark's gospel appear to be repeating what mama asked of Jesus. They are trying to have a whole family get together to come around Jesus to give them what they want for their boys from Jesus. Now, whether their mom was an overly involved and overbearing helicopter mom or a perfectionistic and overachieving tiger mom, I don't know. If you don't know what those terms mean, look them up later. You and Google can work that out. Regardless of whatever kind of mom she was, Zebedee's family wanted the best future for their boys. They wanted the best of the best, the cream of the crop. Mama is asking the question. The boys are double-clicking on the question. Like any good mom and dad, they want the best for their kids. So what was their request? What did the family entourage ask of Jesus? It says in verse 37, this was the request, to sit one at your right hand and at your left in your glory. Because Jesus referred to himself multiple times in Mark's gospel as the son of man, this imagery that these disciples would have been familiar with from Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, which speaks of God's kingdom reigning and ruling over all the kingdoms of the earth forever through this one like a son of man. In other words, they had picked up on Jesus calling himself multiple times the Son of Man, and they had one image in their mind, a reigning and ruling king in a global, worldwide kingdom. So what did James and John do? Well, they want to sit right next to Jesus. They want to sit right next to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords as the reigning sovereign over the world. In other words, they want first dibs on heaven's highest and loftiest rewards. They want more than just an inner three-circle friendship on earth. They want to be exalted. They want to be high and lifted up. They want to be seen. They want to be known. Oh, yeah, they want Jesus to be glorified. But notice where they wanted to sit. They wanted to sit right next to Jesus so that when Jesus is lifted up, people see them too. Friends, do you know that people can use Jesus as a platform for their ego? Seminaries are full of them. Churches are full of them. Men get degrees and get to know people, network, not to make much of Jesus, but to use Jesus and make much of them. They do it in the choir. They do it from the pulpit. They do it in deacon bodies. It's very common. 
At first glance, you and I might think this request is largely harmless. But unlike us, Jesus can see the motives of our hearts. Friends, do you know that Jesus not only knows what you ask him in prayer, he also knows why. That's why Jesus responds back with a bold statement. Did you catch that? You do not know what you were asking. Sometimes Jesus, that is exactly his response to us. You keep bringing this request to me, but you don't even know what you're asking. Instead of Jesus, though, dismissing these boys because he loved them, he turns the conversation like a good pastor or a good disciple would do. It's a teaching moment. Instead of pacifying them or flattering them, Jesus goes deeper with them. He takes these two boys and their response to the deep end of theology. Friends, he takes them to the deep end of a theology of suffering. To illustrate and teach them what type of suffering that he, along with, though different in some ways, James and John would experience, he uses the imagery of baptism and drinking the cup. You'll notice that there in verses 38 and 39. There's a baptism and a drinking of the cup that Jesus will receive that is similar, though different, than what the disciples who follow him will receive. Now, baptism, when you hear that at first, you were thinking, huh? That doesn't make any sense. Jesus, what? Well, baptism is often spoken about in the Bible, in the New Testament, about that New Testament ordinance whereby repentant followers of Jesus are baptized into water in the name of the triune God. But the word literally means to immerse, to plunge, to be overwhelmed and even drowned, like a shipwreck going down into the sea. That's why in Romans 6, verses 3 and 4, Paul uses the word baptism in a metaphorical sense to talk about death and burial. Uh, Keeping with that same mindset, Jesus in Luke's gospel says that baptizo or baptism is used figuratively to speak of distress or immense suffering. Luke 12, verse 50, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. And that's what Jesus is doing here in Mark 10. He's building upon his passion prediction in verses 33 and 34 of his approaching suffering and his approaching death. Thus, Jesus is going to be baptized. He's going to be submerged. He's going to be drowned in the suffering that leads to his death. But then Jesus uses this other imagery. Did you catch that? This drinking from the cup. Sometimes in Scripture, drinking from the cup, my cup overflows, as the psalmist speaks of, speaks of blessing and favor. But sometimes the cup actually speaks to someone receiving the wrath and judgment of God for sin. Listen to Psalm 75, verses 7 and 8. But it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. 
Or Isaiah 51, verse 17, wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. After then identifying with the disciples in these images of baptism and drinking of the cup, this immense suffering that he will endure, and that in following him, they will endure at some point in the future. He says, James, John, to sit at my left hand and my right hand, that's not mine to give you. That's not mine to grant. Matthew's gospel says it's the Father's prerogative to keep those seats vacant for who he chooses. Jesus basically tells the boys this, if you want a heavenly reward like me, you must suffer in the path of obedience to God like me. You see, these boys, they wanted a crown without a cross. They wanted to be exalted, high and lifted up, to be seen by others but they totally missed that those who exalt themselves will one day be humbled and those who humble themselves before the Lord in due time, the Lord will exalt them. Friends, these young men had an ego problem. They had a pride problem. They thought they were worshiping Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the triune God, but they were worshiping the triune self-God of me, myself, and I. These guys were trying to get brownie points with Jesus, trying to take our inner three advantage, hey, and put us, give us the best seats in the house so that every way, every day, we'll one day see it with us. But notice who's paying attention to this conversation. Someone eavesdrops. And they don't like what they hear coming out these boys' mouths. Look at verse 41. And when the 10 heard it, who are the 10? Remember, there were 12 disciples. 12 minus 2 is what, kids? I didn't say adults. Kids, 12 minus 2? That's what I'm talking about. Education in the River Valley, going well. (laughs) The 10 disciples. And notice what it says. They began to be indignant at James and John. That word indignant is the same Greek word we looked at last week in verse 14 where Jesus becomes indignant towards the disciples for forbidding the kids to come to him. But why? Why are the other ten disciples indignant, displeased, aroused to anger, deeply annoyed and irritated with the sons of thunder? Brothers and sisters, it's the same reason Jesus caught them arguing with one another when he gave his second passion prediction in Mark chapter 9. Back in Mark 9, they were arguing and debating about who was the greatest in the kingdom of God. And friends, it appears that once again, after Jesus teaches them on suffering and death, the one thing they want to fight about is about status. Prominence, who is top dog, 
Who is the alpha male in the room? Who is the number one draft pick for King Jesus? Who is at the top of the charts as the best preacher? Who is the most prolific and effective Bible study teacher? Who is the best singer on the music team? Who is the best children's ministry director in the children's ministry? Who is the godliest? Who is the strongest? Who is the smartest? Who is the best looking? Who is the best disciple in Jesus' discipleship school? That's what they're arguing over. So what's the core issue going on? These disciples, though they outwardly follow Jesus, inwardly, they don't look like Jesus. Jesus, who is lowly and gentle, has disciples who are arrogant and harsh. Jesus, who is humble and patient, has disciples who are self-centered and have a hasty temper. Jesus, who is loving and serves the least of these, has disciples who are hateful, haughty, wanting glory from others for themselves. Friends, think of the last argument, the last tiff, the last proverbial eye roll you had with someone. Let's get real more, let's get a little more personal. Think about the last argument or dispute you had with your spouse the last argument you had with your child, the last dispute you had with a fellow Christian. Think of the last disagreement you had with a fellow church member or an elder and why even this morning you still can't let it go. Why you can't genuinely look them in the eye and say, I love you and I appreciate you. You know that's common in church life, right? People can sit right next to each other, but there'd be an iceberg between them. Why is that? Why is it that people who call themselves Christians, like us, can claim to love this God who is so good, who is so kind, who is so merciful, and we, who supposedly represent him, not show the same to others? James tells us the root cause. James 3, 14 to 16, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it's earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. Bitter jealousy. It's when we're spiteful towards someone else Because they get what we want and we don't have. They get treated with love and respect in ways we think we deserve, but we don't get it. That's bitter jealousy. Selfish ambition. This is ambition turned on feeding the monster of the flesh. It's Satan's love language. Your goals, your desires, your ambitions are set on using people for your advantage rather than serving people for their benefit. You know what James says? To professing Christians in a church? It's demonic. He didn't say it's a small problem. It's demonic. It's divisive. 
It doesn't honor the Lord and it doesn't build up his church. It tears it down. Friends, beside preaching a false gospel or believing a false gospel, do you want to know one of the greatest threats that destroy even a good church? It's pride. Selfishness. I've been a pastor for 10 years. If I could write a book on why people leave churches, it would be both entertaining and gut-wrenchingly disgusting. But 90% of the time, people leave even good churches. You know why? Because they didn't get what they wanted. The music isn't just like they wanted it. The children's ministry isn't just like they wanted it. The preaching isn't just like they wanted it. The YouTube platform isn't as big as their favorite celebrity they listen to online. And we can go on and on and on. Oh, friends, that's why at CCBC, we don't take membership casually here. You don't casually join this church and casually leave it. And others shouldn't do the same. This is Christ's bride. So friends, when we're tempted to just deuce out on relationships, peace out on churches, we need to check our hearts for bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. And friends, that's exactly what's going on with these brothers. That's what's going on with all 12 of them. Jesus just told them, I'm going to a bloody cross. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be delivered over to hateful and ungodly men, and I'm going to die. And you know what they're talking about? You know what they're thinking about? What about me? What about my glory and my attention? So what does Jesus do as a good teacher, an example of humble and courageous leadership? Look with me in verses 42 to 45. And Jesus called them to him and said to him, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Here Jesus sandwiches two familiar ideas of leadership and service, and he combines them into one. In essence, he looks at these grumbling, disputing, bitter jealousy, selfish ambition knuckleheads that have been following him now for a little over two years, and he basically says this, gentlemen, you know the pagans? You know the Gentiles? People who don't know and fear God? And you know the kind of leaders they hire and elect and vote on? And you know the type of authority they exert on people? They're oppressive, they're domineering, and they're tyrannical. That's what the word exercise authority means. It means to master, to overpower. In our vernacular, it means to lead others with a heavy hand. It's a husband who is harsh and abusive to his wife or kids. 
It's a wife who is verbally abusive and overbearing in her nagging towards her husband or kids. It's a coach that constantly belittles his players. It's a pastor who barks orders, demands perfection, and never encourages his flock. It's a boss that treats people like his slaves to serve his selfish passions like Pharaoh did in Egypt with Israel. And then Jesus says to this, young men, You know what kind of leaders the world applauses. You know what kind of leaders pagans put on a pedestal. That shall not be true among you. That shall not be true as a follower of Christ. True disciples of Jesus Don't lead or oppress people with a heavy hand. That's why Peter would say in 1 Peter 5 to elders and pastors. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Jesus then there in verse 45 makes it crystal clear why he came to earth. He corrects them, he teaches them, and then he says, get your eyes back on me. He says in verse 45, even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, friends, the disciples, they thought of the Son of Man only in light of Daniel 7, a ruling and reigning king that Jesus is and will always be. But before he would be crowned as King of kings and Lord of lords, he would first have to go to a cross as the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. That word ransom there, it meant to ransom someone, like ransom money for the deliverance of a slave. To my non-Christian friend, to fully grasp why Jesus came to earth, you and I have to first recognize that we are first slaves to sin. We are slaves and shackled to the sins of loving ourselves and loving sin more than loving God. Friends, there's a high debt for sinning against a perfect God. A debt that you nor I can pay. A debt that no amount of money can pay. A debt that no amount of good deeds you offer up to God can pay. Friends, the wages of sin is what? Death. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Paul would say in 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6, there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. And friends, notice here, Jesus came in his first coming. He says not to be served as a sovereign king. He came to serve. Diakoneo where we get our word deacon. He came to deacon us, to serve in the most menial, basic, and lowliest of tasks, 
for our good and our example. Friends, Jesus, the sinless one, entered into this sinful world. He took on human flesh and he remained obedient to the will of God, even to the point of death, even death on a cross. Friends, on the cross, Jesus became the sin bearer for sin slaves. He became the sacrificial lamb who also drank the cup of God's wrath. He drank every last drop. In Mark 14, 36, he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Friends, what was in the cup? It was the receiving of God's eternal, just, fierce wrath against sinners and their rebellion to God. We should have drank the cup. And he said, move out the way. I will drink it and I will drink it down in full. What else did Jesus promise in those passion predictions? Not only that he would die for our sins, but that he would rise again. Friends, that's good news. You know why he was fearless walking into the eye of the storm of the cross? Because he knew on the third day he would rise again. Friends, Jesus is a leader worth following. Jesus is a servant worth imitating. Friends, our problems in the church, our problems in our home, boy, our problems in the government and the world is that we have bad definitions of leadership and service, and Jesus is the cure. You want to be a servant leader? Follow Jesus. He's courageous. He is fearless. Not because his muscles were big, but because of his faith in his God. And boy, he is a servant, a humble, lowly servant, washing the feet, the filthy feet. And one of those betrayed him. What was he showing? He was depicting of God's kind love for us, taking his enemies and making them his friends at his table. And you know what's glorious, friends? The cup of God's wrath has already been drank. The cup we drink now is the cup of blessing. The Lord's Supper is the monthly reminder that the curse has been removed and we are blessed in Christ. Jesus leads his disciples with 20-20 vision by his example of humble and courageous obedience to the will of God. But along the way, he came across a blind beggar who, like James and John, had a request they wanted Jesus, or he wanted Jesus, to grant him, which leads to our second and final point. Point number two, Jesus leads his disciples with 20-20 vision by his answer to prayer and his power to save. Look with me, starting in verse 46. And they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. 
And when he heard that it was of Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And he called the blind man, saying to him, take heart. Get up. He is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Jesus and the disciples arrive in Jericho, Mark says, which is about 15 to 20 miles northeast of Jerusalem. And along the road sat a blind beggar. Could you imagine it? The disciples and a pretty large crowd are heading towards Jerusalem. And they come across a roadside, and there's a blind beggar. He probably sat on that road for many days, many weeks. He was probably known as the blind beggar. There's Bartimaeus again. Barking off his needs again. Give me some money. Give me some clothes. There's old Bartimaeus. Let's just walk around him. Bartimaeus couldn't see, of course, but friends, his ears were extremely sensitive to the sounds around him, especially on that day. And once he heard that Jesus of Nazareth was near, he cried out multiple times. Did you notice that? Not just once, but twice. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus then gets word that this blind man is insistent that he meet Jesus. You see, others are bothered by the man's persistence in calling to Jesus, but Jesus is not bothered by his calls for mercy. Oh, Friend, if you think you annoy Jesus by calling out for mercy, you got the wrong Jesus. Amidst a loud, boisterous crowd, Jesus can hear and he can see with 20-20 vision of any broken, poor beggar crying out to Jesus for mercy. Oh, friends, we may not be able to see with 20-20 vision. This blind man couldn't see a lick of nothing and yet Jesus saw him. And Jesus asked the same question. He asked his own disciples. What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. But this time, Jesus doesn't have to rebuke him or teach him a lesson about having ungodly motives like his disciples. Jesus instantly gives this blind man, Bartimaeus, eyes to see. And notice this, Bartimaeus follows Jesus with faith and sight from that day forward. Beloved, the disciples, think about it, had followed Jesus for years. And they asked Jesus to exalt them to prominence and status. That's why they were asking Jesus to grant this request. That's what was really going on in their deepest hearts. But Bartimaeus, he simply wanted to see, and notice this, 
He wanted to see so that he could see Jesus. He's not using Jesus' miracles to be on his way. He says, heal me, Jesus, so that I can see you. But why? What was Bartimaeus' deepest heart? He did not just simply want to see Jesus. He wanted to follow Jesus. Jesus says, go your way. In other words, here's our vernacular. Go do whatever you want. I healed you. He could have chosen to do anything with the rest of his life. And guess what he chose? I'll follow you. The word healed can also mean not just wellness of our body, but also the salvation of our souls. Friends, that means on that day, this man's eyes were made well, and this man's soul was made well. Friends, in light of our passage this morning, what would Jesus have us ask of him in our lives? How would Jesus' example and his power to give eyes to the blind shape the way we pray this morning? Friends, we should pray something like this. Or whether through suffering or through promotion, make me more like you. If I'm brought low in my status in the workplace or brought low in my dating or marital status or I'm brought low in the church, I want to learn how to serve quietly without a platform or praise. Just make me more like you. And Lord Jesus, give me spiritual eyes to see you and a heart to follow you the rest of my life. Save me from myself. Give me only that which helps me humbly and faithfully follow you. Members of CCBC, the more we look back with 2020 vision to Jesus and to imitate his example, the more our church will resemble the courageous and humble obedience of Jesus to do the will of God. The more we keep the gospel, the fire for our soul, front and center, and the more we keep the gospel as the motivation for why we do what we do, friends, the more Jesus will delight in granting us our request. If our hearts are right, friends, he's more willing to give us in prayer than we are willing to go to him in prayer. Al Mohler writes this, the church is to live by God's word and the gospel in such a way that others are left scratching their heads, wondering how people could actually live like this. Why do they love each other? Why are they so generous? Why do they live so conscientiously? Friends, the passion predictions, they didn't get it when Jesus was right in front of them. But when he rose from the dead, when he ascended to the right hand of God, when the Spirit came down the day of Pentecost. Friends, the book of Acts in the New Testament helps us understand they got it. They remembered what Jesus told them in the past and they saw it with crystal clarity. And what happened with those men? They turned the world upside down for King Jesus. Do you want to be great in the kingdom of God? according to Jesus' definition of greatness, then embrace the heart and role 
of a servant like Jesus. Sinclair Ferguson has a dynamite quote. I've been chewing on this for like three days. It is so good. It's like Bruce Chris steak in your mouth but for your soul. Listen to this. In the kingdom of God, true greatness is measured by our service, not by the number of our servants. It is seen not in how high up the ladder we have climbed, but how far down the ladder we are prepared to climb for the sake of others. Jesus climbed a ladder from heaven to earth to ransom, to pay for a sin debt we could not pay. And he's promised to take us back up the ladder to glory with him. Dear Christian, if Christ came from heaven to earth down that ladder and promised to take us back up, what ladders in your life is Jesus telling you to climb down to serve others? But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to serve, to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would cause us to have hearts that are humble and lowly, like our Lord Jesus. Lord, we pray that you would answer our request insofar as they cause us to follow you more faithfully. Lord, we also pray that we would embrace that baptism of suffering in drinking the cup of suffering, not to atone for our sins, but in effort to obey you no matter the cost. Lord, we pray that even now as we close with this song, Lord, we like Bartimaeus would recognize that it is well with our soul if we are trusting in Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.